I was really tempted last Sunday. I had to fight the temptation to wear maroon to church last Sunday. And, you know, I woke up this morning and God took that temptation away from me entirely. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I have no desire for maroon at this moment. Uh, Since we're on the topic of football now, one of the greatest coaches who ever lived, my dad kept a plaque of this man in his office. My dad was once a high school football coach himself. Uh, was a man named Vince Lombardi that even if you weren't around for his tenure, you probably have heard the name. He was the classic old school football coach, the consummate old coach at the, uh, for the Green Bay Packers in the early 60s. They had a dynasty in the early 60s where almost no one ever beat them. And many will, would still consider Lombardi to be the best coach who ever lived, regardless of sport. I mean, there's a great story about Lombardi that came from the summer of 1961. Right as the dynasty was beginning for the Packers, they had just fallen short of the championship the year prior, lost by, I think, four points. And they were coming in to begin practice for the fall. They were hungry to get back on the field and prove themselves. Well, Lombardi took his team and he gathered them around him with a ball in his hand. And very famously, Lombardi looked at this team and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he proceeded to to go through the very basic fundamentals of the sport with these guys. I mean, these professional athletes who were at the top of their game, and yet their legendary coach did not take anything for granted. He started with a football, and he walked through everything they needed to know in order to be successful. That year, they end up winning the championship, I think, 37 to nothing. So Lombardi was on to something after all. Well, here at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is going to pull a Vince Lombardi on us. He is going to give us some very basic commands. You heard Mary read it earlier. Uh, Some of these things we've known since we were three years old. Some of these things we've known a long time. And yet, these are the very basic things that we desperately need if we're going to walk out the new life that God has called us into. So if you were here last week, we looked at Ephesians 4, I think verses 17 through 24. Very, very important text where Paul gives us this, this fabulous contrast, this image of the old self and laying aside the person we once were and then putting on the new self, which is created in the likeness of God and holiness and righteousness of the truth. It's a powerful image, the new self, but it's not super practical. And if you're anything like me, there are times where I really need things clearly spelled out for me. Uh, and so you may have left last week thinking, okay, new self, I need to put on the new self. Well, what exactly does that mean? What does that entail? And that's what Paul is going to do for us today. He's going to tell us exactly what he means, uh, not in totality. He doesn't give us every possible command here, but he's going to give us an idea of what he means when he says the new self. And it's almost like Paul standing in front of us saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is a football. I'm going to take you through the very, very basic things of what it means to walk out the Christian life. Let's not take anything for granted here. And so as we go through these, the, the, the latter part of chapter 4, it may seem almost like a, uh, just a, a random list of commands, almost like reading through the Proverbs. It just seems like every verse is different and they don't connect together. But I'm going to tell you right now that they do. They, they tie together, and we're going to talk about that as we go. But for today, we're just, we're just going to walk through each one and try to figure out what Paul is calling us to, what God calls us to when we live out this new self. So look at verse 25. 
Paul begins by saying, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Uh, Right away, Paul says, lay aside falsehood. A few verses before this, verse 22, Paul says, lay aside the old self. And so everything he's about to tell us, beginning here, he's, he's connecting the two. That my old nature, my old way of life and yours, part of that, the connection is, part of that was our tendency to lie, to deceive, okay? Our propensity for deception. And so Paul says, put that away. Don't lie anymore. And I, you know, I'm, we could probably make a list as to reasons we tell lies. And some of them maybe are more noble than others. I thought of at least a few reasons we lie. Uh, we lie to hurt people. We lie to be malicious. And maybe that's something you've had experience with. Uh, gi- giving or receiving. We lie to get out of trouble, don't we? We lie to, to make sure that we can somehow weasel our way out of a, of a jam. We lie to avoid embarrassment. Sometimes people will say, have you seen the movie with Meryl Streep and, you know, the, the horse? And I'm like, yes. And I haven't seen the movie but I don't want them to explain the whole plot to me, I guess, or something. I don't know what my reason for lying is, but I just, I just, I guess I'm afraid of being embarrassed. And so I just say yes, whether I've seen it or not. So if you, you know that about me now, okay, so don't try to catch me in a lie. But I, sometimes we do it, we don't even know why. Sometimes we lie to protect somebody's feelings. We think we're doing a noble thing in that. Um, or maybe we lie to cover up a lie that we've already told, right? That's when it gets really dangerous, when we forget where the truth even started and we start to cover things up. Whatever the reason is, what does Paul say? He says, lay aside. Stop it. Stop lying. And he says, not because lying is generally sinful, not because it's wrong, period, although it is, but he gives us a connection here. You see it? He says, stop lying and speak truth because we are members of one another. And that's Paul's language concerning the church, that the church is like a body, Christ is the head, and we are all members of that body. We're functional parts of a larger whole, and so we shouldn't lie to one another uh, under that um, understanding of, of our connectedness, our interdependence. Because a liar, here's the thing, if I'm a liar, I, that's, I am by nature a self-absorbed person. I'm not thinking about other people. I'm only thinking about myself, and therefore I will lie in whatever way I think perhaps will benefit me, even if it costs you, even if it hurts you, all I'm considering is me. But a member of a larger body, we're called to consider others as more important than ourselves. And that's the thing for me, that if if I consider that you are more important than me, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to hurt you through deception. I'm going to speak truth to you because my concern is not just Kyle. My concern is you. And so Paul doesn't say it's wrong, period. He says, listen, it's wrong because it, it hinders and, and poisons community. We need to be considerate of that. Verse 26, he says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. This is an interesting command all the way around. He sa- he's, Paul commands us, be angry, and yet do not sin, uh, and and it's, a, it's possible that Paul is right here. He's telling us what to do when we've been offended. It's possible that even right after telling us not to lie, he's speaking to the offended party in a lie. If you've been lied to, here's what I'm telling you to do in response. I'm not sure for, you know, we can't know for sure. But there's a sense in which here, if you've been hurt, Paul's telling you what to do. Be angry. And yet in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down 
on it. Uh, is it appropriate for us to be angry toward unrighteousness? Yes, we reflect God's character. God is angry toward unrighteousness. And yet somehow God in his anger doesn't sin. And that's, that's much more of a threat for us than it is for a deity. Okay? God handles that well on his own part. But for us, there's a very, very fine line between anger toward unrighteousness and then letting that anger stew and marinate and it becomes bitterness. Um, I thought about, you know, we, we use our crock pot at home a lot. And I love the crock pot. It's a good, it's a good machine. If you leave something in a crock pot, though, you don't wash it out pretty quickly, then that stuff sticks and it's almost impossible to get out. Okay? And that's what, that's what anger does when it morphs into bitterness. It sticks to us and it becomes almost impossible for us then to deal with. When, when you, Paul, Paul says, don't go to sleep angry, and we understand what he's saying there, don't let the sun go down. Because if you go to sleep angry, you're probably not going to sleep it off and wake up happy you're probably like me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to marinate, it's going to become part of you, and that thing becomes resentment, it becomes bitterness. And if you see verse 27, this is connected, he says, do not give the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity is the word tapas, we get topography. He literally says, do not give the devil a place to live, to dwell, a foothold in your life. Uh, and here's why, because Satan is the great deceiver. Jesus said Satan is the father of lies. He's been a liar from the very beginning. And when we hold on to anger, you've been hurt, you're rightfully angry, Paul says so. But if you hold on to it, if you refuse to forgive, if you let it become bitterness, you will immediately begin to entertain deception. You give Satan a place and you will start to tell yourselves lies. Uh, I, If I'm mad at you and I let that anger stew, I'm going to start to to, I'm going I'm to stop seeing you as a person, and I'm going to start assuming all sorts of nasty things about you. And you can, I'm sure you can attest to this. I'm going to start overemphasizing your sin and underemphasizing mine. I'm not going to see myself as a guilty party at all. I'm going to make all of my problems to center on you. You're going to become my bullseye. That's what bitterness does, and it's all a lie. There may be wonderful, noble things about you, but I'm not going to see any of those things because my bitterness has taken over. I've given the devil space. I'm, I'm allowing him to roam. And so uh, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on that stuff. Deal with it. Be a forgiving person. Be able to, in Christ, let these things go. Um, who was this spoken of? That while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God, who judges righteously. Peter wrote that about Jesus as he lay dying on the cross. That even the men who had nailed his hands and feet were spitting upon him and mocking him and laughing in his face. What did Jesus say? He said, Father, forgive these men. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus Christ set the example for us that when we are hurt, and of course all, with all the world coming down upon him, with the wrath of God poured out upon him, with the sins of the world on his shoulders, even Jesus in the, the absolute most vulnerable place harbored no resentment in his heart for anyone. Now he was Jesus, of course, but Peter tells us that story. He says, he has given you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Resentment will only poison it never solves a problem. And so Paul says, do not give the devil space to make you into something that, that Christ has called you out of. If you've been forgiven, 
then we ought to be able to forgive others. C.S. Lewis, uh, he said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Resentment, I don't see you as a person. I only see your sins and I don't see mine. But if I, if I recognize what Christ has done for me and how much he's forgiven me of and the depth of my sin that had to be forgiven, then now I'm able to forgive as opposed to holding on to anger. Big verse, verse 27. Uh, verse 28, he who steals, let him steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. We're not going to spend as much time. This is a pretty straightforward verse. Stop stealing. But you notice the transformation here from old person to new. And here, here, this is really significant. Paul says, instead of stealing, get a job and work. And work doing what is good so that you will have something to give the person who has need. And here, I love the, the, the idea here of thinking of, of what it means to be a Christian. I'm no longer a drain on people. I'm no longer a taker. God, by his grace, has made me a fountain, right? A drain sucks away, a fountain gives. And that's so significant for us. Whether, whether kleptomania is an issue for you or not, I don't know. It may be. Stealing may not be your per, the worst sin for you in this list here. But the idea is, listen, stop being a drain and start becoming a fountain. That's what Christ has come to do, that you would turn around and be a giver, Right? In Luke 19, there's this wonderful story of a man named Zacchaeus, a story we've known probably for a long time. A man who was a fraud and a cheat, roundly despised throughout his culture, uh, and, and deservedly so, as a bad guy. And yet when he encountered Jesus, I mean, it seems, as you read the story, it seems almost instantaneous. This transformation that takes place in Zacchaeus' heart, that he seems to just suddenly become this wonderful, generous, gracious, unselfish person. He becomes a philanthropist. He just begins to give his money away because that's what Jesus produces in our hearts. And only Jesus can really produce that. To, to, to remove the drain and to create a fountain in its place. That's what Christ does for us. Now look at verse 29 where Paul says, this is maybe the hardest one for me. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such according to the need of the moment that uh, it may give grace to those who hear. My Bible uses the word unwholesome. That's really a nice way to phrase it. The, uh, the, the original Greek that Paul wrote in here, that word for unwholesome is really better translated as putrid. It's the word that would be used for, for food that had been spoiled. Something has gone, fish has rotten, uh, has become rotten. And if you know that smell, that's the idea here. That, uh, that Paul is saying, let no rotten, putrid words proceed out of your mouth. Now, when I read this, this particular verse, I memorized this verse back in college. Um, I always associate it with cussing. I just, that's the way I always looked at it. And, and I still, when I look at it, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is cuss words. And of course, th that's included here. But this also includes gossip, slander, tearing people down, uh, grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2 warns us against that. Uh, crass jokes, anything that perverts, anything that tears down, Paul says, don't let that stuff proceed out of your mouth. One of the, one of the, when I became a Christian at the age of 16, one of the clearest examples for me, I knew the Spirit of God had entered into me, is that for the first time in my life, I felt conviction about my language. 
something about my, my speech really began to bother me. And that was, that was the first thing I remember in terms of how do I know God is present in my life through salvation? That was it. It was, it was my filthy mouth. And once again, you know, Paul is not telling us, he's not just telling us what not to do. And you've noticed the, the progression throughout here. He's not just saying stop. He's, he's replacing the stop doing with start doing. He's replacing the bad with, with new alternatives. So he's already told us stop lying and instead speak truth to your neighbor. Stop uh, sinning in your anger and instead resolve it before the sun goes down. Be a forgiving person. Stop stealing and instead begin to be, become a giver. And here he does the same thing. He says, stop uh, speaking rotten words and what instead? And this is so good. He says, only speak a word as is good for edification, which means building up uh, according to the need of the moment so that it may give grace to those who hear. And so Paul says, when we speak, he says, speak words that are upbuilding, that are timely, timely, and words that are gracious. Jesus in Luke 6 uh, said, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. There's nothing that comes out of my mouth that uh, slips out somehow and didn't come from a deep place within me. That's not a fair excuse. Again, C.S. Lewis, Jennifer shared this with me from Mere Christianity. She's been reading that book. And she said, you know, often we, we use the excuse of, well, I just got caught up in a moment. I got caught unaware and something slipped out. And Lewis actually said that that usually tells us more about who we really are. When we get caught in a moment, when we get caught unaware, what's in there is going to come out of us. And he says, that's often a better uh, understanding of what's in my heart because I haven't had time to premeditate my words. And so that's no excuse for me to say, well, it just, it was an accident or it just happened. Jesus said, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Now, here's the difference. That whereas in, in my past, before Jesus Christ uh, became my Savior, I spoke in a reckless way, a careless way, hurtful, unloving. It didn't matter. I, I, I spoke like my friends spoke, whether it was good or bad. I just, I, in, I imitated them. I had, no con- I had no concern for my language. Um, and maybe you were the same way. But in Christ, it says we've been given a new heart. Paul has already explained that to us throughout Ephesians 1 through 3. We've been given a new heart, and a new heart produces new speech. And so this is not something that we can just discipline ourselves out of. If you try hard enough, you can probably stop cussing, okay? Um, If you try hard enough. But that's not what Paul's asking us to do here. He's saying that not just what you don't do, but here's what you do instead. You speak with grace, and a gracious tongue is going to reflect a a grace-filled heart. Your heart's going to produce what God desires to produce in your words. Um, This is, I hate to say it this way because it, it, it gets me. And maybe it'll get you in the same way it does me. Like, how do I know how closely I'm walking with God? What's, what's my barometer? What's my measure? How am I doing spiritually? Well, what have my words been like the last week? I mean, just take the last week. How have I spoken? And I mean, think about it this way. Have I been full of sarcasm, blaming others, complaining constantly, gossiping, racism, judgmental attitude toward other people, ugly speech, crash jokes. I mean, you fill in the blank. That is going to be a a pretty fair barometer in terms of how devoted I've been to Jesus is the stuff that's coming out of my mouth. Jesus said a good tree is going to produce good fruit and a bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. 
Um, Have my words reflected the kindness and the grace of Jesus? Or am I speaking like an old person, like the old self, you know what I mean? Um, it's, a, it's a good barometer. It's one I hate to look at myself in the mirror in that way. But, but Paul says we speak in such a way that reflects Christ now. That's what it is to be the new self. And that requires his grace to fill me so that grace might come out of me. Um, some of y'all are saying, move on, my brother. Okay, we're moving on. All right, verse 30. The last little portion here, uh, Paul, this is kind of a summary of the whole, in a, in a sense. Paul, in the last three verses... He tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So recap this with me, okay? Lying, anger, stealing, uh, rotten speech, Those things destroy relationships, all of those. And that's the context here for the whole. These are not just random commands. These all deal with the church and they deal with our relationships. This is how we tear each other down and ruin what God has has called to be uh, unified, right? But there's something even worse than that for a Christian. There's something worse than me hurting you and you hurting me. He tells us in verse 30, he says, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And this is one of those scary verses that's almost kind of slipped in there. What Paul tells us right here, he says, we can live in such a way that we, in a sense, trample over the cross. That even as Christians, we can live in such a way that we take entirely for granted what the Holy Spirit has done for us in sealing us as the sons and daughters of God. And and like a parent that weeps over a wayward child, God is heartbroken when I choose to love my old sin more than I love my Savior. Now think about that. God, it says, God grieves. He's heartbroken. It pains him when I love my sin more than I love Christ. As one who has been redeemed, as one who has experienced the cleansing of his blood and his salvation in my life, if I go back into sin, God is broken apart over that. In Psalm 51, David is writing Psalm 51 in the aftermath of his terrible sin against Bathsheba. He committed adultery, and then to cover his tracks, he orchestrated her husband's death on the front line of the battlefield. Famous story. Well, he's been caught. Nathan the prophet catches uh, David and calls him out for his sin. And David writes this Psalm 51, and he makes an interesting comment here. He's speaking to God, and David says... Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is uh, evil in your sight. That's always peculiar to me because David has, it's obvious that he has sinned against many people. Bathsheba, Uriah, her husband, their family, his own family, the people of Israel whom he's called to lead and govern, he's, he's sinned against many people. And yet David drills down to the very root and he says in the, in the purest sense, in the most eternal sense, my sin is against God. That when we sin, even if our sin hurts others, even if it destroys our own lives, God is always the most offended party when we sin. In the end, we sin against him and it grieves him. And so if we're ever to take, if, if you're ever tempted to take your sin lightly, to think it's no big deal, to justify it by comparing yourself to the surrounding culture, A verse like this should stop us in our tracks. Every sin, even my private sin that nobody else sees, 
God sees and it grieves him because he saved us for more than this. He saved us to rescue us out of this. And we shouldn't be so quick to run back into it. Sin is not a small issue to God. It costs the life of his son to forgive it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And Paul, in conclusion, he tells us how we might grieve the Holy Spirit. He gives us a quick list. Verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All the ways in which our hearts harbor evil against other people. He says, let those things be put away from you. And instead, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God also has forgiven you. Uh, Where do we get the power to do this? Where do we get the power to reject sin in favor of righteousness? Where do we get the power to uh, embrace holiness, which is foreign to us apart from salvation? How does that happen in a Christian's life? Well, Paul tells us, he tells us at least implicitly, we get it from God. God says, be holy just as I am holy. Right? We get it from him. We get that power from God who has sealed us, God who has poured out his kindness and grace and forgiveness and mercy upon us through Jesus. That's how we become kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. We don't muster this stuff up from within ourselves. And here's why it's so important for Paul to to lay these things out for us. I know your temptation is the same as mine. To think, man, I've known this stuff since I was in diapers. And it's really true. I mean, think about it. Uh, Don't lie. Don't, uh, Don't act out of anger. Don't steal. Don't use potty mouth. That's what we call it in our house. Don't, don't say rotten things. Right? Don't harbor bitterness. All that stuff we've known since we were little kids. And in fact, you don't have to be a Christian to know those things. Most religions around the world would, would, would nod in agreement with those principles. Non-religious people would say it's better to be this way than it is not. You shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, and etc. Right? I mean, this, these, these things are not unique and profound truths of Christianity, necessarily. Um, but here, here's the process that, that I've recognized in myself, especially now as a parent. Um, I'm 35 years old, and so I, I don't exaggerate to say that I've known most of what Paul has just told us, I've known it since I was three. So I'm 32 years and, and counting here on these very basic things. Um, what were my parents doing when they taught me these things? What were my teachers doing? What were my daycare, uh, you know, overseers, whoever it was that was looking over me? What were they doing in teaching me these things? They were trying to bend my will uh, into conformity with what's right. And we do that with kids. I do that now as a parent with my kids. We try. We take. We take impressionable little sinners. Okay, and we, we, we tell them what's right, we discipline them when they don't abide by it, and we're trying to bend that child's will into conformity with what's right. And you don't have to be a Christian to know right and wrong. Romans 2 tells us that the law is written on every heart. And so we, by and large, we do this, and we do it in school, and we do it in church, and we do it at home, and there's a, there's a good part to that. I mean, like, we should do that. It's biblical and it's right. I've got to raise my children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. They have to know right from wrong. Yes. But is there a limit to that? And here's where it becomes really, uh, uh, this becomes a sticky thing for me to to even think about. I'm 32 years into knowing this stuff. Am I really any better 
am I really any godlier on my own than I was when I was three? Am I, I mean, really, have I become a less angry and bitter person over time? Have I become a person who speaks more graciously and who does not speak words that are rotten and impure? I mean, I'd like to think so, but there's a part of me that I wonder, maybe I've just gotten better at, at, at hiding it. Maybe I've just become more of a professional sinner. When you're three and four years old, you just blurt it all out. You just, it's all out there, right? Okay? And there's a part of that that I appreciate because there's no pretense in that. It's just, it's just out there. Well, as we get older, we learn how to manipulate the system, don't we? And I learn how to hold on to certain sins right, that maybe I can get away with or that I can justify or that I can laugh about and joke off about, but, but, but I haven't necessarily become any better. I mean, I don't know if anybody in this room would raise your hand and say, yes, let, make me the bullseye for purity of speech. Everyone look to me as to how to do it. Make me the, make me the model citizen for res, re, resisting bitterness. I'm, ne, I'm never bitter toward anybody. Would anybody be willing to do that? Here's the problem. A lot of people, and I believe a lot of Christians, are trying to do what Paul's called us to do, very basic commands. We're trying to do those things as if we're three years old all over again. We're trying to bend and manipulate our will because we know the difference between right and wrong. But what we find is, even after 32 years, or for some of y'all, 50, 60 years, you're not any better on your own than you were when you started. Because the law can curtail your behavior, but the law cannot change your heart. What Paul is telling us to do here, every religion around the world perhaps will agree with, irreligious people would agree with, okay, but why aren't we any further down the road than when we started? Why am I perhaps just a more sophisticated sinner than I was when I was a little kid? Because something has to come from outside of me and transform my heart. That's the only hope we have. I cannot manipulate and bend my own will into conformity with these commands, and you can't either. I'm sure you've tried. Only the grace of Jesus Christ can produce what Paul's calling us to here. And some of us, perhaps, are trying to live the new life in the old way. We're trying to do within ourselves what only Christ can do from the outside in. He's got to come to us and produce this within us. It's, I used this term last week. It's, it's an alien righteousness. It's not within me to live this way. It's got to come from outside. It's got to come from someone else. And this is so significant for us. Paul is not calling us to be better law-abiding Christians, as if the Christian life is simply a more moral, ethical way of life than other people. He's not just trying to modify behavior. Paul is not concerned with bending our will, because that doesn't work. He's telling us to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created or recreated in holiness and righteousness of the truth. And apart from that, we're going to continue to live the way we always did. We're going to continue to try hard and fail and then find ways to smooth it over and function. And Paul is not calling us to that. God does not desire that for us. He wants transformation. Think about, we're going to close with this. Think about what, what we're being asked to do here, what we're being commanded to do. Um... If, if I think the very best posture for us would be a posture of confession, that for me to look at this and to just acknowledge I can't do this, I think God would be pleased with that because at least we're starting from a place that acknowledges my need for grace and that there's got to be something done for my heart 
that I can't do for myself? Think about this. If, if I'm willing to admit that I can't do this, then surely somebody can, maybe even somebody has. When Paul calls us, I'm going to go back through the list very quickly. When Paul says, stop lying and tell the truth, Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not just tell the truth. He was the very embodiment of truth and still is. Right? When Paul says, stop, being, stop letting your sin become bitterness uh, and take over your life. When God was angry toward us in our sin, did he allow that sin to become bitterness and therefore punish us eternally for what we had rightly deserved? No, he took his anger, his wrath, and he poured it out on Christ instead so that he might forgive us our sins, although we did not deserve it. That's what Jesus has done for us. What else does Paul say? He says, uh, stop stealing and start giving. Who has given more of himself than Jesus? Who laid down his life for his enemies on the cross? Who died for the sins of the world? Um, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a word that gives grace to those who hear. Who spoke more gracious words than our Savior? I say it again, as he lay dying on the cross, he did not spit back, he did not revile in return. He entrusted himself to God and he offered forgiveness even to the most heinous of men who would crucify him. Is there anything that God in his word calls us to do that Jesus has not already done to perfection? And he didn't do it, again, remember, he didn't do it to show us how, although that's a part of it. We see a great example in Christ. He did it for us. He did it for you. When I say, I can't do this, Jesus says, I have done it, and I give that righteousness to you as a gift. I give you my salvation. I give you a new heart, and I will empower you now to be different. And if we don't get that right, we'll forever be toddlers, knowing what is right, but unable to do it. Only Christ, through receiving his grace as a free gift, only Christ can give us the difference. He can make the difference for us. He calls us to something that only his grace can produce. Maybe you're trying to be good, but you're doing it the old way. Don't. <laughs> it's, it, 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 I mean, I, now I do it every day, and so it's easy for me to say, but it, it never works. You can't bend your will into submission to these things. You can only submit your will to God and allow him to transform your heart. Um, we have been made new in order to walk in newness of life. And God calls us to put on the new self, that which only Jesus can produce in us. Pray about that. Father, we have, we have absolutely everything um, we need to fight this battle. And Father, don't let us forget that. I'm, I'm so quick to think of myself as, as just, I'm just deficient and I'm incapable and you know, I'm, I'm never going to change. And Lord, that is, that is such a loser's mentality. Father, that's not what you've given to us. You've given us a spirit, not of fear, not of despair. You've given us a, a spirit, Lord, of power and love and of discipline. Father, we, we're, we, have, we have been given um, the empowerment of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So, Father, Lord, let us refuse to just... just Continue to walk in, uh, in the old self, Father, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that we know are wrong, the things, Father, that, that, uh, that uh, d- destroy our relationships. Lord, um, I-, I pray, Lord, that you'd remove our taste and our desire for those things. What benefit are we deriving from those things? 
But Lord, more than that, more than just taking the bad stuff away, Father, would you fill us with your grace and goodness? Would you fill us evermore with your truth? Saturate our hearts and minds on Jesus Christ. He is our deliverance. He is our deliverer. Apart from him, we are nothing and we can do nothing. And so, Lord, would, would our hearts today, I, I pray that none of us walks out of this room thinking, man, I've got to stop gossiping so much. I, I've got to stop being so bitter. Lord, that's only half the problem. Would you draw us near to yourself? Would you make me, Lord, a man who, who when I wake up in the morning, I, I begin seeking you immediately? that I turn to your word and your promises immediately, Lord, that I, that I praise you for your grace right away so that my heart is, is tuned to you, that my, that my life is turned in your direction. That's, my, that's our only chance, Father. We've got to put on the new self that you have created within us. Um, Lord, I, I pray that we would be a, the, a kind of people who are distinct from the world and and that we could attribute all of that to you, Lord. We, we get no credit for that. If we're different, it's because, Lord, um, there's a grace that has transformed us. And, and I, I pray that wherever we are in this moment, and I know that, Lord, we're, every one of us in this room, we're somewhere on this list. We need you in this. Um, we don't outgrow the need for this. Father, would you uh, show yourself mighty in our place of weakness? Would you show yourself supreme, Lord, in the places where we have elevated ourselves over you. And Lord, would you bring us to repentance? Um, your throne is a throne of grace. And so, Father, let us approach you with gladness. Um, you will produce this kind of heart in me. You will do it. And Father, make me, make me to want it. Make us to want you enough to receive this. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.